one of my things that I follow as a marketer is don't lie, which, which sounds really funny, but if you just follow, like, don't lie, uh, your marketing becomes <laughs> much less falsity. Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. EveryoneHatesMarketer.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. We'll notify you before anybody else of our future guests. You'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. You'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also quite simply to have great one-to-one -one conversation if you need any help. Um, if you haven't listened to the first episode with DHH from Basecamp, have a listen as I give more information about the concept of the podcast. In this second episode, I talked to Laura Roder, and she's the CEO of meetedgar.com, which is a social media tool that helps you to reshare older updates that people might have missed the first time around. So Laura is actually a very interesting marketer. She started as a social media consultant, then went on to sell social media courses, and then used her knowledge and audience she built uh, in the last few years to bootstrap meetedgar.com to a very successful business. So it's definitely an example of an overnight success that took a few years for sure. So here is what we learn in the second episode of Everyone Hates Marketers. Uh, you learn that how spending time at a particular coffee shop gave her the motivation to start a business and to fight every day. You learn how many visitors they get in a month, how many leads they generate, and how many customers they generate. Uh, you learn why you shouldn't be afraid of your competition and how to use them instead. Uh, you learn why everything we purchase is actually based on marketing and marketing only. You learn how to make your marketing less bullshitty and why you should stop caring about, you know, those dumb little tricks that really pollute your marketing. She'll also explain why you should repeat yourself online, even if it freaks you out, why marketers ruin everything. And finally, she's going to share with us the simple formula for some great social media ads. I found this formula quite interesting. And finally, she'll, she'll share some top resources to become a better marketer. So have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. You're very welcome. The first question, just to get into the, the thick of the subject, what's the biggest fail you ever witnessed on social media? <laughs> well, I mean, the biggest fails are always those people that tweet something racist and then lose their job and become, you know, a worldwide phenomenon. Um, there's actually a really good book about that. I'll, I'll have to look at the title. We can put it in the show notes about people who have been publicly shamed on social media and how it's actually had this far-reaching effect, like they can't get a job for the next 15 years. Um, and that's something really interesting to me about social media because it's very casual and conversational on one hand, but then on the other hand, you know, you're publishing information to the internet that lives there forever and can have a real impact on your life. So 
you don't, I see a lot of people making the mistake of feeling like they have to be too careful or, or too formal, which is a bad idea. But at the same time, like, yeah, you do need to kind of stop and think for a second <laughs> before you tweet. I've been thinking about, about something, particularly in the last few weeks, uh, because it's quite timely. I was imagining myself, what if I run for president one day, right? Uh. And they look at my Twitter or Facebook and they dig these tweets I posted like five years ago when I was drunk at a party right? and they blow it out of proportion. I would genuinely be embarrassed. I, I mean, I don't have necessarily any tweets that come to mind, but, uh. you know, there is specific small things that you might have said that could definitely come up, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a tricky balance. You don't want to stress about it too much. I mean, you know, the odds of it happening are small and they're also random. I mean, sometimes for famous people, things get pulled up and get totally taken out of context and there's nothing they can do about that. You know, they didn't do anything wrong. The media has just decided to spin it a certain way. So, it, you know, unless you're an Uber, an Uber celebrity, I think most people really shouldn't <laughs> worry too much about stressing about every little thing that could be taken the wrong way. So I definitely shouldn't be worried. Is that what you're trying to tell me? I don't think you need to worry. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so Laura, uh, we just discussed before starting the, the episode and recording it that I feel like I know you quite a lot and obviously you don't know me at all, but it's all about <laughs> you in this episode. So I like what you guys do at Edgar, at Meet Edgar, because you, you promote diversity quite a lot. You have a very diverse team. Mm -hmm. You are all about bootstrapping. Not necessarily bootstrapping in against VC, but you're more into, mm -hmm. you know, let's build products that make money instead of just yeah. trying to raise money. Uh, you're also remote. You guys mm -hmm. work remotely. You're not in San Francisco, even though you're quite close now, aren't you? You're Los I'm Angeles. I'm in Austin. I'm Austin. in Austin, Texas. So you're, yeah. you're fine. That's not even close. <laughs> Far enough away. So this is all the, the reason why I wanted to talk to you today. Um, mm. A few more things that really surprised me, not surprised me, but really interests me about your background is that you, you taught yourself to code when you were in junior high school, you moved to Chicago, you worked for just two years, and then you move on to create your own stuff. Um, yes. We'll go about that in more details in the next few minutes. But I'm really interested into you and your personality and why you are here today, why you are such a driven person, because you are. So... I'm going to ask you a few questions that are really about you. Um, mm. You don't have to answer all of them, but the first one, what do your parents do or did? What, what kind mm -hmm. of job uh, did they have? So I was raised in a, in a self-employed family, which I think gave me a huge advantage. So my dad is an architect, a residential architect, uh, and my mom would help to keep the books and do the administrative work of the business. So it's a little different from what I do because my dad was very happy to be on his own. He had employees for a while. Uh, a recession came and he had to fire them and he just never hired them again. <laughs> he really liked, you know, not having a team and being able to do his own thing. So uh, it's a little different for me in that he wasn't, you know, I enjoy building a bigger company and kind of seeing how far I can grow it. But I think growing up in a family where you make your money from a family business it certainly gave me a massive advantage because I know so many people when they start a business, their families and friends are really unsupportive and think that's crazy. And, you know, most businesses fail and this is never going to work where I grew up where my family made our income from my from my parents being self-employed. So it obviously wasn't a huge mental leap for me to be like, OK, being self-employed is a normal way for people to make money. 
This is, this is exactly why I'm asking this question. That gives a lot into your personality. I was raised by teachers and <laughs> exactly as you said, it's, not, it's, it's a mental exercise for them mm. to picture how to do things differently, but they accept it now. Yeah. Any, I'm interested in hearing, do you have any particular story or event that happened to you and that made you who you are today? As I said, this person that seems to be really driven, really, you know, wants to change things and fight for what's right. I mean, as far as the, the driven side, uh, an experience that I think about a lot. So when I was in college, uh, I went to University of Texas here in Austin, where I live again now. Uh, I would go to a coffee shop and study as you do in college at 10 a.m., 11 a.m. or whatever. And at the coffee shop near my house, there was this family that would be there sometimes when I was there. And they were a mom, a dad and a, a toddler. And I would think, how are they here at 11 a.m.? You know, what? <laughs> what is their life like that, that neither one of them has to work? And I saw them more than once, you know, so I knew it wasn't just a one-time thing. And that's something that really struck me and stuck in my head of, I would like that, you know, when I'm older and I have a kid and I have a family, I would like to be able to take my whole family and go hang out at the coffee shop at 11 a.m. And it's something that I took seriously, that I was really serious about building towards. And now I do have a two-year-old and a husband, and I do have that, you know, kind of schedule where we, we hang out during the day sometimes. Uh, and I think something that I've always taken as a truth is if anyone else can do it, then I can do it too. Like if I can meet a single person that's done it, then I know that it's possible. And I think I've been lucky to meet some very successful people relatively early in my career. And of course, when you spend time with people that are very successful, you see that they're normal people. They're, they're smart, but they're not Einstein smart. You know, they're not so brilliant that you can't comprehend it as a normal human. And they have things that they're really bad at and they have flaws and problems. So I think that was always huge for me, whether it's a couple in a coffee shop or seeing someone who's really successful in business thinking, okay, well, now I know that that person can do it. So why can't I do it too? I'm really curious. Did you talk to them? <laughs> no, did I you track them down? Looked, no, I just would look at them. I mean, it's probably better than I didn't talk to them. Probably if I had, they'd be like, we're both unemployed. We're having a horrible time. We hate this. So <laughs> I think my fantasy is probably better. <laughs> the other side of the story is like this couple has been stalked by you for years and they are traumatized. <laughs> That's why you don't right. see them anymore, right? That's the other <laughs> side. It's like, there's this student. She always comes at 11 a.m. every time we go in. And she like looks at us weirdly. We have to move out. So you ruin their Probably. life. Uh, <laughs> moving on to, to your business in particular. So Edgar is a social media scheduling tool that mm. allows you to really take those social media updates and give them another life all the time. So mm -hmm. to reuse them in order to get as many, as much traffic and as much attention that they deserve. I'm interested in something. You're really public about the business and your goals. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything that you've never shared with anybody about your business that you're willing to share with us today? <laughs> um, I would have to say no, unfortunately. I mean, I do... <laughs> I do share a lot. So I don't think you'll get anything really juicy that I've never shared. I mean, I'll tell you the type of stuff that I don't share, which gets sort of close to your question. I mean, what I don't share because I just don't think it's appropriate is um, 
issues that we've had with employees, you know, we've had to let some people go. And that's always a hard thing because it is a really important part of the business journey. And if you're someone who's running a business, figuring out who's the right fit and who's not is so crucially important. But I think, you know, discussing it in any way that could be like, you know who I'm talking about basically would just really not be fair to them. So I would say that's the kind of only like kind of bigger theme in the business that has been a struggle that is, is kind of hard to talk about in a public forum like this. When there is, when other people are involved, for right. sure, that's probably when, where the limit is, isn't it? Okay. So that's interesting. Now, there's another exercise I want to do regarding your metrics. One thing I'm going to give you just the metric uh, type that I like you to share you, and you can share it or just say I pass basically just to have mm -hmm. an overview of, of your business. Because I know talking to a lot of SaaS business and SaaS marketers, one thing that they really like knowing is their numbers compared to others to say, mm. is my, is my conversion rate? Okay. Is, is it average or is it too low? Is it? So I think it gives them a little bit of an idea that like successful businesses like yours, have and to see whether they're in the right, in the right track. So it's, we are in February, 2017, just to frame it in the context. How many visitors do you get a day on the website? Uh, I know on our blog, we get around 30,000 a month. I would guess on our homepage, we get around 50,000 a month. Okay. Are you willing to share conversion rate from visitors to leads? So not necessarily customer, but people who request an invitation to Edgar? Well, actually, customer is the number that I know off the top of my head. Um, cold traffic to customer is around 1%, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Okay. Um, well, and actually, I know traffic to lead as well because, yeah, on our homepage, about 10% of the people who come to our homepage um, opt in for an invitation. Hmm. So, so we do a different flow than most startups. We don't start with a trial. We start with an invitation. So that 10% rate is for the invitation. And you know what? I've actually, I've used your tool a few times just to try it out. But you no, know, social media is not a thing that I enjoy doing too much. So basically, we'll talk about that later. But when I, when I saw the request and invitation, it genuinely created a feeling that I don't necessarily have usually when I go to SaaS product website where they say, you know, get a trial. I mm. felt that I wasn't in control. I felt <laughs> that you owned the control and therefore I had to beg you, not beg, <laughs> but you know, it felt like, okay, this seems to be really exclusive. They seem to know their yeah. stuff. They're not necessarily going to send me an invitation, even though you are. It still gives right. this feeling that, yeah, you know, it seems like a, a precious, not precious, but valuable uh. product. Right. And I think this is why you've done it, uh, which is great. So around 50,000 visitors a month on the, on the, the blog and the, on the main website or, or just the well, blog. I think it's about 80,000 together. 80, so 80,000 together, 10% from cold unique visitors to, to invitation requests. And then 10% again, around 10% again from invitation to customer. Is that what that adds up to if you end up with 1%? Yeah, I think so. 10% okay. <laughs> of 10%. Yeah, that must be Sounds it, bad. right? If right. Uh, if listeners think that we are crazy and we don't know how to do math, please free to uh, <laughs> feel free to correct us. But I think that's the right thing. Great, that that was very good. And I've I've read an article recently. You guys have reached more than four million in annual recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Congrats! That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, right. So now people are probably asking themselves, okay, 
they seem to be really successful. They seem to have a good product. They seem to have good numbers. How, how can I do it myself or at least help the business I'm working in to do it? Um, so you have a particular story. And for those who don't know how you manage to grow this business mm. that fast, let's frame it in a question. So let's say I have a new business or we are in a startup in a SaaS business that is just starting mm. out. What should I do step by step in order to grow Mm -hmm. in the rate that you're growing at at the minute? So I think there's kind of two, two phases, right? So the first is what people call product market fit. And I have kind of a different point of view on product market fit than a lot of people. To me, product market fit is not something that you kind of play around with until you get it right. I think if you don't have it, you need to start over. Um, and I know this isn't it, So I'm kind of saying how I do things. I know other people do things differently. Um, but I've seen a lot of people waste a lot of time being like, okay, we're going to do like a sales tool. And then it's like, okay, no one's using the tool. And then they're like, well, we just need to tweak it a little bit. And maybe we need to add like better email filtering. And it's like, no, you just, you didn't make something that people wanted, you know, like, which is fine. Like that's a lot of products. You don't hit the mark, but like this one doesn't work. Go back to square one. Don't try to keep tweaking what didn't work because I think what's lost a lot in the startup world is people focus so much on problems. They forget that you have to have a really, really good solution to the problem in order to get people to buy it. And it's shocking to me how many people will say like, we want to do some software in like the, you know, the, the project management space, you know, because people don't like their, their, their task managers and project managers are always switching around. It's like, Yes, that's true. And it's because that's an incredibly hard problem to tackle. You know, like people not being 100% happy with their, their project management tool is because it's such a complex problem. You just throwing another tool out there does not mean you have a business. Like you have to actually create a better tool that people, for whatever reason, find more effective than what's already out there. And, and that's what product market fit is. So like I want to go into marketing next, but you can't have marketing if you haven't created something that you know is useful to people. And if you have people buying it, it's useful. And if you don't have anyone buying it, it's not useful. Let me challenge you there, there first, because yeah. I've read that a lot and it makes complete sense. And people will basically say, yeah, of course, build a product that people like. But how does one make sure that from the first try, mm -hmm. uh, how does one build a, a, a product that actually that people like? So I don't think you can know for sure until you sell it. And I mean, there are ways to like pre-sell it or stuff like that, but I don't think you know for sure until someone has given you money. Uh, I think the easiest, the easiest way to make something that you have a good guess people will like is that like what we did for Edgar is it's an existing, we took something that exists and we just made it a little bit more effective in a certain way. So people that Edgar customers are usually using another social media tool that they're coming to us from. They're not like people who've never used a tool before. And I think a lot of people get scared of competitive spaces, but competitive spaces are really great because you're like, okay, we already know that hundreds of thousands of people purchase 
social media tools. We're not trying to sell them this new idea of like, maybe you need this thing that you've never thought about before. So if hundreds of thousands of people purchase social media tools, we created a tool that we think is really useful, is useful for us, you know, more so than the other tools will probably be useful for other people. That gives you a pretty good shot of being like, yes, a certain amount of people will agree that your point of view is a a good way to do it. Uh, but I don't think you can know it. I think it was totally possible that we would have launched and we would have been like, well, we thought this was a better way to do it, but I guess other people didn't agree. You So before you started Edgar, you had a consulting company, so social media consulting. Mm-hmm. You switched and fired all of your clients. I need to ask you about all of, the, all of that later. Uh, and, and started to sell courses instead. And you had mm-hmm. 75,000 people in your email list. And yes. so therefore you were able to, to market to them with Edgar. My gut feeling mm-hmm. is that you were able to create a very good product because you knew your customer inside out. Yes. Right. So that is, de- that is definitely true. That's, that's why I was trying to lead you in to answer as well is that I think, and I agree with you, it's very difficult to get product market fits when you have no clue whatsoever on which industry you're selling to. Let's say Mm -hmm. you have no experience in the insurance company sector and you try to sell this cool new tool in like to them. I don't think it's going to be easy because you don't know those Mm -hmm. people. So this is what I think worked for you very well. You knew your customer inside out and therefore you were able to create a good tool. Yeah. And that's, you know, when I say that you have to have a great solution, I mean, I think, you know, you raise an important point. That's part of having a great solution. Yeah. If you're creating a tool for the insurance industry, you need someone who's an insurance veteran crafting that tool with you. You know, you need them. If if that's not you, you need them helping you with all of the product and feature decisions so that you know that it's helpful for for that specific type of customer that you have created a great solution for them. So first step, product market fit. It's not, mm-hmm. it's black and white basically for you. It's like mm-hmm. you either have it or you don't. Yeah. Then second yeah. phase, marketing, you said. So, right. Second phase is marketing. And this is another area where I see like a lot of startups who are like, you know, we want to grow bigger and we're not sure exactly what to do. Um, They're not really taking their marketing seriously. They're still really focused on the product. Like, of course, one of the biggest fallacies is trying to add features in order to grow the business. And I mean, it sounds really obvious when you say it, but how would, how would people know those features are there until they've already paid for the software? Right. I mean, sure, you can publish a blog post like not many people are going to read it. Not many people are going to see it. And they still don't totally understand until they use it. So I think what a lot of people forget, because this fact is so painful for developers, is that people are buying your product not based on the product, but only based on the marketing because they have not seen the product. Um, Now, if you know, if you're selling a trial, obviously, you're trying to get them to use the trial solely based on the marketing, not based on the product. And then maybe you're trying to convert them from the trial. But I think developers really, really hate this fact because it's not how a lot of people like to see the world. Like we don't like to admit that everything we purchase, we are just buying based on marketing. But, you know, with the exceptions of objects that we're actually able to use before we can purchase them, that's it. Like everything you've ever bought off Amazon, you are buying due to the marketing. You are not able to experience that product until after you've already paid for it. So it's such an important fact that I just think really gets overlooked and people 
I don't know, it makes them nervous and they want to find another way around it. And they have like, because the dream is just that your product is just gonna be so great. You won't have to market because people are scared of marketing and they think it's, you know, they think it's icky and slimy and gross and they don't want to have to go down that road. So they're like, I'm just going to have a product that's so great that, you know, it'll just sell itself, which it always needs communication, like products that sell themselves. It means they've been sold via word of mouth marketing and your customers have sold it instead of you. But someone had to describe this experience of what using this product is like in order for someone to buy it. You've actually, that's, you've explained it very well. It's actually the perfect way to say it. The thing is, I think a lot of companies selling products that failed think that they don't need good marketing because they have a good product. But the right. counter example, and there are many, there are many, many, many products that have been developed by Facebook, Google, and very like companies with millions and millions uh, of mm. revenue uh, and of billions even of budget, and yet they failed still. And even though the product was developed by the top developers in their mm. field, and that's because of marketing, because the foundation of marketing were not there. If you don't understand your customer, if you're not able to explain what your product does in their own language then you're done. Right. So, uh, right. Sorry, go on. Yeah. And I mean, I think also people think that trials are a way that they can get, get out of this whole thing. They're like, Oh, well, I'll just give people free trial and then they can experience for themselves. I mean, one, like I said, you have to convince people to use the trial and which is a whole thing because people are really busy. <laughs> you know, people have a lot of information. People are really busy. They're not just happy to spend the next three hours, like trying to figure out how to use your software and if it works for them and what the use cases are. And I mean, all this stuff is certainly stuff that, that my company could get much better at and that we're actively looking to improve. But so much software, like they put you in the trial and maybe you have some kind of little intro or demo, but then they don't have the like, here's a bunch of ideas for how you can use this. Um, like I had lunch with, with Wade from Zapier the other day, you know, Zapier is such an amazing tool and its use cases are just, just endless. You know, we use Zapier along with MailChimp and it allows us to not use one of the more, um, advanced like email automation tools because, Intercom and Zapier and MailChimp together can do everything we need. Like Zapier has replaced Infusionsoft or something like that. So Zapier has all these incredible use cases. And for them, there's so many that it's so hard to kind of even know where to start. And, and they do start, they send out kind of emails about it, but it's easy for me to see for another company, right? How much they could, like they could have an entire campaign selling Zapier just as an email marketing solution. And a lot of people sign up for Zapier and they never know that it can do that. And, and every piece of software has all these use cases that you know innately as the person who created it. And you don't realize that it's not so obvious for your customers. It's uh, the concept of job to be done, isn't it? Um, in, mm -hmm. Intercom uses that really well. They've done a lot of research in job to be done. And that's exactly this. It's what is your product being used for? Not mm -hmm. what do you do with it, but you know, what's the actual job behind all of that? So exactly your example, Zapier plus MailChimp is basically email marketing on steroids, even if I don't, mm -hmm. you know. but ex yeah, that's a very good point. So the job that your product does, not what the product does on its own, which is very interesting. Let's move on to social media in more particular, because this is where you specialize mm -hmm. in, even though you don't necessarily do the marketing for your company anymore, you're still pretty much knowledgeable uh, mm -hmm. in social media, uh, I think. So I'll, uh, let's drill down into marketing and, and social media. Um, are there any, you know, con conventional wisdom or best practices being shared around in social media that you think are just 
plain wrong. They are just lies and myths <laughs> that we need to stop. Yeah, I mean, yeah, lots of them. So, I mean, the whole premise that our our whole point of view with Edgar is that you should be repeating your content on social media, which has become a less controversial idea. If, like a few years ago, there were people saying you should just shut down your account if you're ever even scheduling anything. Some people think you need to be sitting there live posting everything, you know, don't even use a scheduling tool. Now a lot of people have accepted, okay, scheduling tools. Uh, but this repeating thing still freaks people out a lot. You know, they're like, I don't want to be a robot. I don't want to annoy people. I don't want to spam people. Uh, I actually just looked this up for a presentation that I'm doing tomorrow. I looked up the impression rate for my own Twitter account. And it's funny because there's been a lot of hoopla around Facebook reach and how much it's dropped because it has dropped significantly. Uh, Twitter reach is just as bad. They just make you calculate it yourself when you look at the stats. They don't calculate it for you. So I calculated my own, you know, because they show you the number of people that see a tweet versus the number of people that follow you. So Twitter uh, has between around 2%, so a half a percent to like 3% of, of people see any one single tweet that you send. So that means that, you know, to be generous, 95% plus of the people who follow you did not see any tweet that you sent, right? And, and that's not even, I mean, it actually is more complicated because some of the people that did see it don't follow you or share in a retweet or whatever. So it's not even including your followers. But so we know for sure 95% of people are not seeing it. It does not make any sense to create fresh, custom content multiple times a day, every day for the rest of your life that, you know, 5% of people are seeing. And, and by the way, these numbers are true across marketing, you know, in email marketing, if you're getting a 20% open rate, like that's considered a good open rate. That's a good open rate. Well, that means 80% of people did not open the email. And yet people are so scared of like, I don't want to email too much. I don't want to bother people, even though you can be smart if you want to, and even send to those that didn't open, you know, but people get very scared for their own business of, of saying too much. And you have to remember that you read everything you write. That's why this feels overwhelming. I see every single tweet that I send out and the ones that get retweeted, I see again and my mentions, right? I see it all. So to me, when I share something again, I'm like, I just shared that a few months ago. I remember because I saw it come up. Well, 95% of people did not see it the first time. So they obviously don't remember. And by the way, if they do, this is the other thing. If you see repeated content, it does not make you angry. People have this idea their followers are going to be so angry if they ever see them repeat something. I'm like, that's literally what trending content is. Like when content is trending on the internet, which means it's good, right? That's what we're all going for. It means it got posted lots of places, but you saw it over and over again. This is a normal thing on the internet. My uh, contrarian hat, uh, I'm going to wear my contrarian hat now uh -huh. and, I, and say, okay, so 95% never don't see it, right? Which makes comedy sense. And 95% of those 95% will, will forget it in the next 10 minutes anyway. Right. right? However, do you think that you have certain, like in the, let's say you have 1000 people following you on Twitter. Mm. It's probably a good assumption to say that maybe 20% of those followers are responsible for 80% of, of the, the engagements, right? So they follow 20% of those people will follow you and check Twitter more regularly. So maybe those people would see your stuff more often and you basically are never able to reach those 80% because they're never on Twitter anyway. Well, no, 
actually, no, not on Twitter. You could maybe make that argument. That argument does make more sense for Facebook since it's favoring the stuff people are engaged with. So on Facebook, that makes a lot more sense because Facebook, you know, the more you engage with something, the more likely Facebook is to show you that page. Um, Twitter with the Twitter has added like a stuff you miss section at the top, which is like a non timeline. But in general, Twitter is still just straight timeline based. Uh, so what you're saying is actually not true because you don't see more of the people that you like the most. It totally depends on time of day. It totally depends on people that you follow, like how many people I follow. If I only follow three accounts, I see all of those three accounts tweets, no matter how much I care about those three people. If I follow 10,000 people, I see very little of anyone. That's just the nature of Twitter. So it does have a lot to do with how the tools actually work. Um, sometimes even your like biggest fans who are the most engaged, it doesn't matter if you're not sending out a tweet during that hour that they're on. That makes sense. Total sense. Let's come back to marketing just a little bit before and what I like to call marketing bullshit, because in this show, we can actually curse because we're just flagging it on iTunes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's so you're more than welcome to curse. Um, <laughs> only 2% of people trust marketers. That's a study that's been done by HubSpot. It's true. They, they trust us less than politicians, I think. Or maybe the politicians are the only one that, uh, that I think, yeah, I think more, or lawyers or anything like uh, that type of profession. So why do you think yeah. marketers have such a bad reputation? Because marketers ruin, <laughs> because we ruin content. I mean, that's, that's just true, right? Like this is, this is the, this is the phase of social media and of content. Like everything starts out with just pure non-sales, non-marketing content. I mean, Instagram, right, is like just a very clear example of this that we can all see since it just launched in the past few years. Like first on Instagram, you just follow your friends. And it's just one of those, like all the social networks were in the early days, just the people that you actually know in real life. They're taking pictures of their dog. You're checking it out on Instagram. Then as this platform grows, you start to follow like influencers or celebrities, which are people that you don't know. Obviously, soon enough, these celebrities and influencers start to be like, hey, I have 100,000 people. Somebody's going to pay me to put some ads in my feed. And they start putting their own ads. And then Instagram starts being like, hey, this is going well. We can put other people's ads that pay us in the feed. And it's like social media and online marketing and content marketing is all about these channels for content. And the channels can only survive with marketers and with advertising. Like, I mean, we'll see how the internet evolves. That's just been how the internet has worked. That's been the pattern. I mean, this big thing that just happened with Medium, they were like, we don't want to make money off ads. And then they're like, so we have to fire everyone and we don't know how we're going to make <laughs> money now. You know, like Medium is saying they want to find some new way to exist on the internet, but no one has discovered that way. You know, you can either pay like, uh, like the New York Times, right, has tried to do this paywall, although they still have tons of advertising as well. I mean, people haven't even been able to make the paywall work. This is just the nature of like when you have a space for content, it has to be supported somehow. And marketing and advertising, it's how it's supported. Uh, unfortunately, in a perfect world, we would all rather have just the content, right? Like I would rather just have the pure content and not have the marketing. That's kind of how we all feel, but that's, that's not reality. How can we make internet suck a little bit less than as marketers? <laughs> so, I mean, one of, one of my, um, things that I follow as a marketer is don't lie. 
which which sounds really funny. Um, but if you just follow, like, don't lie, uh, your marketing becomes <laughs> much less bullshitty, as you say. And it's amazing how often lies are used and how many little opportunities there are for them to creep in, you know, whether it's like uh, fake deadlines or like, you know, fake offers that you're saying are limited or aren't really limited. You know, that's why we've had to be innovative, like on our homepage in this language of request and invitation. You know, we want a way for people to, what we want is give us your email address if you're interested in the software, right? That's what we're looking for. If you are interested in Meet Edgar, give us your email address so that we can follow up with you with information. Uh, we don't say, you know, there's only five spots today and you have to like tell three friends if you want one of those spots, you know, but, but there is a gray area in, in what you imply. I mean, yeah, invitations does sound exclusive, so it might sound like it's limited. Um, so maybe some people would say that just that implication is, is too much, you know, and, and we shouldn't even do that. So that, that's kind of how I draw the line. Like, <laughs> is it true? As long as it's true, we can say it. If it's not true, don't say it. It sounds really simple, but it's, it's really true. And it, it's difficult for us, for marketers to, to never lie because you want people to, to do what you want them to do. And, and yeah, right. you tend to always to like to, to, uh, to hang out in this gray area. I would say like my personal opinion on your way of asking people email, I think is, is, would still be a gray area because you don't release, you release the invitation to everybody. Right. Right. Yeah. But is it as bad as pure lies or anything like this? I don't think so far from it. And, and you're not polluting the internet with shitty ads or anything like this. So, you know, you're fine, <laughs> uh, but it's a good answer. I, and I like that. I think, you know, two words don't lie. I mean, three words do not lie. <laughs> we could ma make internet a better place and marketers, uh, a better name. Now I'm going to re-put my contrarian hat on a little bit, yeah. right? Cause I like to, to tease you a little bit with that. Um, so. Facebook, Google, Twitter, I mean, more Facebook and Google, they're those big, big, big machines now. Uh, they have mm -hmm. more power than most of, most of countries, uh, worldwide. Um, as soon as, you know, they, they can basically change their, their algorithms and, and everything in a heartbeat, right? They can change their yeah. algorithm for, for search rankings. Facebook can change their algorithm to show specific posts in the timeline. Mm -hmm. Like, what, do you think those basically monopolistic power should be forced to publish how they operate internally? They can't because the marketers would just totally ruin everything. I mean, Facebook cannot publish how its algorithm operates because then Facebook would be a hundred percent spam. Um, and actually, this is this has kind of become like the bread and butter of our blog at Meet Edgar. Almost every week, we're able to post an update about some algorithm change that Facebook has. And our whole angle is like explaining how it applies for a small business. Do you need to take action or not? And those are always our most popular posts. And I've just seen since I started doing this, whenever Facebook gives a little hint, marketers ruin it. People go nuts with it. So, you know, they recently said that they were favoring videos um, so people did this weird loophole where they created like a janky animation, but because it moves, it's like a video. And then they somehow set it to like autoplay on their page all the time. <laughs> and then, I mean, their page show up higher. Like, like you said, like marketers ruin things, you know, I mean, marketers will totally ruin any space. So 
if it's like every time Facebook gives any kind of little hint, it's like, guys, like you ruined it for everybody. Now Facebook can't tell us anything again. So I just don't know what else they could do. I mean, for in order for Google to do its job and serve you the content you're looking for. And that's what Facebook is doing as well, right? Facebook is trying its hardest to put content in your timeline that you actually want to see. They can't reveal how the algorithm works. And I mean, I think for people who don't want to be bullshitting marketers, you just have to, all you have to do is keep the long game in mind. Like all these dumb little like tricks and hacks and stuff. And I get asked about them all the time because people love them on social media. People are like, oh, I got this bot for Instagram that adds like 2000 new followers a day. <laughs> and I'm like, why would you want 2000 fake followers every day on your, in- like, how is that going to help your business? I mean, it makes no sense, you know? So, I mean, it's not complicated. All you have to do is be like, does, will this get me quality leads and quality customers long-term and same with all the sales stuff, right? Whenever you're trying to like panic people into buying what you have, that can work, but they're obviously not going to stick around if, if they're not a good match, right? If they don't get value from what you're offering. So you're just going to create, I guess you could just keep doing it, finding more new people to panic, but you're not going to be able to build a long-term sustainable business that way. I've never thought about this this way. And I guess it makes sense. As soon as those big boys, those big companies release the rules of the game, then you're going to try to play with the rules. Yeah. That makes sense. I have something else for you. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to like get everything, every bit of knowledge out of you as much as I can. But there is the, uh, a report that's been published last year, I think, the state of the American customer. And they were saying that 62% of, uh, of consumers say that social media had no influence at all in their buying decision. And only 5% mm-hmm. said it had a great deal of influence. So is social media really useful or is it just a waste of time? So that's always an interesting question because about what influenced people's buying, because people are terrible at knowing what's influenced their buying. I mean, one is just um, on a subconscious level. Like if you ask someone, what are the last five TV commercials you saw? Like you usually wouldn't remember what they were. Sometimes even if you just watched the commercials because you were kind of zoned out. However, you've now heard of those things. Like maybe you don't remember watching the commercial, but now that brand is in your head as one that you've heard of before. Um, and, and people also don't like to admit slash genuinely don't know when advertising has influenced them because that's not how we like to think of ourselves. We don't like to think that we're just like this dumb blob that saw a shampoo commercial and then was like, Oh, shampoo. And then went out and bought it. Like it doesn't make it sound very intelligent, you know? So it's, it's kind of, I just don't think you can ask a consumer like, did this influence your decision? Also. So I always notice when I, when I am influenced by things and I can notice because most of the time you can't. So when I do notice, I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to make note of that pattern that happened. And I noticed the other day that someone tweeted about a piece of software. Um, and he said it was better than another one. And I went out immediately and I downloaded the trial. Like it was a very fast from the first time I'd heard of it to actually downloading it, which is kind of rare. So I noticed it, but I think if someone asked me, how did you hear about it? I would say a friend told me about it. Like I might not even remember that he had told me via Twitter. Cause in my mind, it kind of went in the category of like, Oh, James uses that. And he said it was good. So it's just like, you know, I think it's just sort of impossible to know which channels and are influencing people to what degree. It's a great answer. 
It's difficult to get any bad answer out of you today. Uh, we might have to, to, catch, <laughs> to catch you again in a bad day. And it's, it's exactly true. People are very bad at telling, uh, are explaining their own, their own behavior. The only way you can mm -hmm. really truly judge whether social media has an influence is to watch them or see how they actually behave, not what they say they do. And the interesting thing is... Uh, there's this tool from Google, you probably know it, uh, whereby it gives you per industry which channel is responsible for the conversion. So, you know, mm -hmm. assisted conversions compared to the final conversion. And social media is always in the middle. It's never mm -hmm. really a, a, a channel or sort of channel to take decisions, but it's almost never as well not responsible for the purchase. So exactly as you said, it's brand building, it's awareness, it's just continuous um, marketing, really. Oh, yeah. And we have, you know, we just have so much media around us. I mean, you know, I'm just looking at the things on my desk that I've purchased. Like, I have this notebook and I picked out this one because I liked how it looked and felt the best. But then why did I go, like, I bought this at an American chain called Paper Source. Why did I go into Paper Source? Like, I obviously had the knowledge that they sell notebooks. Did I drive by? Did I see a blog post that they published? Did someone else mention that they had bought a paper source? Like, I don't know. I don't know how I knew where they were and to go there. But obviously that information entered, <laughs> you know, my sphere in some way. But I have no idea how. That's a good example. And, and the listeners are unlucky because they can't see how beautiful your notepad is. <laughs> with beautiful roses and it's all pink. It's beautiful. <laughs> but it's very true, to be serious. It's very true. Uh, you don't really know. I don't even remember what I had for lunch. So how can I remember <laughs> how I discovered right. a brand or anything like this? Right. Moving on to SaaS in particular, let's say we are part of a SaaS business around your size or, you know, that kind of, that kind of size is mid-size and growing quite quickly. How do you use social media to generate traffic, like to generate awareness? So, I mean, the very simple formula is take evergreen content, meaning it can be repeated. So not all content makes sense to repeat. Obviously, if you're publishing like what you think are going to happen is going to happen in the stock market tomorrow, like no one wants to read that three months from now. But most small businesses, most of their content is evergreen style content, meaning it's like how to tips and tricks, strategy, all that stuff. Uh, really, the basic formula of what we do, obviously using Edgar and we advise other people do is create evergreen content and then send it out a lot more than you think you should. <laughs> because every time, every tweet, every Facebook update is an opportunity. And the more you're sending, the more you're creating those opportunities. So I was, I was just looking into this again, I was preparing for a presentation. So I was seeing what tweet have I sent that got the most traction. And I found one tweet that I sent a few months ago that got 141 retweets, which is, you know, extremely rare. Like most of my tweets, like most of them obviously get no retweets. Some of them get a few, like if I get like 15, that's a huge number. This one got 141. And the way that that happened is it, obviously happened to get retweeted by a few people with big followings. And then it was a snowball effect from there and it took off. So this tweet was not like, it was a link to a blog post. It was not anything super innovative that hasn't been tweeted a million times before. For whatever reason, it caught the right person's attention at the right time. Uh, I have not found that you can really 
engineer, I mean, obviously you can't engineer like what's going to go viral or everyone would do it. You can observe and see what your audience likes and what they share and stuff, but then you just have to give them a bunch of opportunities because every time you send out a status update, that's another opportunity to get traffic back to your site, to get clicks and more importantly, to get shares, because that's the cool thing about social media, about how you can be multiplied. And of course, all those people that retweeted me, now my name and my picture is in front of them. They have the opportunity to follow me, blah, blah, blah. So, and when I say a lot, like, yes, there can be too much, like, especially if you're, you know, you don't want to send out the same content every 10 minutes all day. Um, But the nature of these networks is that you can publish a lot more than you probably think also publish in different time zones, something that we just started doing with Edgar. I don't know why it took us so long. We were just publishing in sort of an extended American schedule. And now we publish on the Edgar Twitter account so that we're showing up in Europe, so that we're showing up in Asia and Australia. Guess what? We started getting a lot more traffic once we did that. Like, that's why you use these tools because yeah, you don't want to be up at three in the morning, but you have customers that are because you have customers around the world. And we would have missed all those opportunities without a tool to do that. So step one, create evergreen content, try to see yeah. which one stick the most and leverage it quite a lot by reposting it at different time, especially at times you, you, you don't necessarily think about. Uh, step two, let's say I want to, I've collected a bunch of email addresses and I want to nurture those leads into becoming customers. How, how do I use social media to do that? I mean, that's an interesting question because the more is definitely to do more like paid advertising, uh, because the thing about social media, of course, is that it's just, um, you're just bombing everyone. You know, when you, when you send a status update, there's no way to segment, uh, who is a lead, who's a customer, who's a prospect. Um, you can do that with ads, but I would say, you know, where social media plays into that more is that's where the conversation and engagement side comes in. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that automation and conversation are opposites and they're mutually exclusive in some way. Like I'm either automating my social media or I'm on there having organic conversations. And what I find is they're really perfect compliments because you should let software do what software can do. So software can send out your status updates. Like software does a better job than that than you do because Edgar can, again, be awake when you're not awake and Edgar has time to send out something every hour. Like you have better things to do. What software can't do is write good status updates. Software is like terrible. <laughs> a few tools have tried to do it. Like software is terrible at writing status updates and software can't have that back and forth conversation. But the back and forth is really fast and really easy. Like set up a tool to send out all your updates and then you can go in and you can check out who's responded, what they've said. You can retweet other people. That stuff is super, super fast and doesn't take much time. So that, I mean, that's what I do. I have Edgar sending out my social media, but then I'm going on every day, looking at my replies, retweeting other people's stuff. That only takes a few minutes and then I'm able to do that relationship building side. Do you have any tactics that you would recommend? Um, thinking particularly for Facebook ads to, to, to build the right audience and to reach out to those potential customers. Um, I do have a, I have to go in three minutes, by the way, um, for Facebook ads. I mean, of course the obvious thing is, uh, retargeting and thinking about what information they need from where they are in the funnel. So, you know, do they basically, do they know a little bit about you? Have they, already tried a trial, but then they didn't continue. You can 
make some assumptions after you've talked to people, hopefully talk to real people and find out what they need to know. Uh, and then try to deliver them that information via ad. What uh, top three resources would you recommend to people, to marketers in particular? Top three, like books or tools or what? What? Anything that helps you to become a better marketer. Okay. MeetEdgar.com. Okay, that's number one. <laughs> Automates your social media. <laughs> number two, I'm trying to pick like what's my favorite marketing book. Um, I think made to stick is a really good one that I like a lot. Um, obviously positioning is a real, a real classic. So yeah, read one of those books. I'll count them both as number two. Um, and number three, well, I'm going to cheat and say like do real campaigns and, and see how they do. I mean, I think you know, it's easy to spend all day reading about marketing and you, the first time you actually like put a marketing campaign in place, you realize that all those articles were not that useful. And there was a bunch of stuff they didn't tell you and a bunch of stuff you forgot. So even if you're just kind of doing it for fun, if you're like, I wrote this blog post and I want to see how much traffic I can drive to it for free. I'm not selling anything. This is just kind of a fun project. Like a project like that is incredibly valuable. Awesome. Laura, thank you so much for your time today. It was really fun. I will share the notes and all the resources we, we shared uh, in, the sh in the notes. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as a -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also... Uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on itunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker so thank you so much once again and au revoir
And that's it for another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.